Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Over the last number of weeks, we've been uh, really highlighting community. We've been exploring the scriptural commands of exhorting one another. Right? We, we've been looking at a lot of these verses in the scriptures that primarily have to do with one another. We made the observation that much of the instruction in the New Testament revolves around interpersonal relationships. Meaning that your relationship with the Lord is more uh, than just your private life with Jesus. Which I, I think is uh, maybe a, a revelation or a shock to some people. That your relationship with the Lord is not all about just you and Jesus. It's actually about you and Jesus and everybody else. I think we have this mentality that as long as Jesus and I are okay, uh, it doesn't matter if we're at odds with anybody else. But really, Scripture is pretty point blank and pretty clear to us that we can't hate our brother and love God. Right? So we've been talking about how, uh, how the connections between one another actually impact our relationship with the Lord. You know, in Scripture, there, there's a major theme of adoption, right? You guys have uh, hopefully maybe encountered this if you've been in church. Um, if you haven't been, there is this theme of adoption that describes the family of God. If you read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I, I want to take note that this is adoption into family, right? This isn't like God is just some, some kind of like creepy dude, like single guy up in the sky that just says, oh, yeah, I'm going to adopt this one person. But we're adopted into a family with countless brothers and sisters throughout the ages of this beautiful picture of the family of God. And we, we understand that this is where things get messy. If it was just about us and Jesus, we'd be okay. But it's when it's about us and Jesus and everybody else, it gets a little difficult, does it not? How many of you guys, are, how many of you guys uh, have no beef with Jesus, right? Uh, hopefully not. Uh, if you do, we could talk about it later. But isn't that kind of the, the, the common sentiment that we get? I, I know that I've gotten it when I've shared my faith with people. You know, they, they tell me, you know what, I'm down with Jesus, I dig his teachings and stuff. I like this Jesus guy. I love everything about Jesus. I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. I can't stand his followers because they're kind of mean and they're jerks or, or for whatever reason. And uh, it's this narrative that I love Jesus, but I hate his church. And if I can be honest, I, I don't think you can claim to love Jesus and despise his church because that's his bride. Uh, I, I, just... Take, for example, you know, Elliot and I are friends, this guy over here. Uh, we like to hang out. We like to ski together and, and all that fun stuff. Uh, we like to go fishing. We're great friends. Um, but if Elliot and I uh, were hanging out one day and he just came up to me, he's like, man, you know what? I love hanging out with you. I love helping you move stuff. I love, <laughs> I love, <laughs> love, <laughs> he's giving me a, a wavy hand there, but uh, I love hanging out. I love skiing. I love all this stuff. I love uh, all the, you know, going fishing and whatnot. But you came to me and said, you, you know, but I just really, I really don't like Kelly. <laughs> Kelly is my wife, by the way. I just really, I really like hanging out with you, but I really just can't stand Kelly. Uh, could you imagine what that would do to our friendship? It wouldn't be, we wouldn't have a friendship anymore, man. Uh, I know that that's absurd. Nobody would actually think that because everybody knows if you like me, it's only because you like my wife. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of, it, it's reversed in that situation. People are really like, man, I love you, Kelly, but man, do I really have to like your husband? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. Um, but that's the same way about people that are like, man, I love Jesus. I love everything he stands for. I love what he talks about, but I can't stand the church. Or I don't like those mean, hypocritical people. Which, man, I get that. I, I understand where they're coming from. But we have to understand the way that Jesus feels about his bride. The way that he feels about his church. And I'm talking about the church collectively, not just Open Door Church. I'm talking about every gathering of believers that have professed faith in Jesus Christ. This is, a, this is a big deal. 
God passionately loves his church. Continuing on in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.25, we often hear this quoted uh, in regards to like uh, husband and wife relationships, but it it begins there with talking and giving instructions to husbands, so you should take note of this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. But then we see how, how that description of how Christ actually loves his bride, how Christ loves his church, how Jesus loves this congregation of believers, it's described as this, that he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We see this, that God gave himself. Jesus Christ gave himself. He died. He paid a high price upon Calvary for his bride. And it's for that reason Friends, that we can't despise his church. We can't despise his people. We can't despise our brothers and sisters in Christ because he paid too high of a price for them for you to look down upon them. I want you to think about this. How many of you guys have people you don't like? How many of you guys have people you don't love? Let's let's say that. We're not supposed to, right? We know that. We're going to get there in scripture. But I can honestly say, man, there, there are people that are hard to love, but Jesus loved them enough to die. And we're, we're called to love like Jesus loved. That's hard. I, I realize, man, we may not be there, but that's the goal. That's the aim. And so uh, a few weeks ago in one of my messages, I shared from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 20. I want to read this again. Um, It was in my message on holy provocation, but uh, in verse 20, it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this command we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Um, Can I be vulnerable for a minute? Uh, I was fishing with Mark this week. And uh, we, uh, we, we went out on his new kayaks, and we were fishing, and I go, I caught the most fish, just saying. Uh, I could teach you how to fish sometime, Mark, if you really like that. I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> That's terrible. This is complete antithesis of what I'm going to be talking about in the rest of my sermon. So if you would like a, a sermon example, a healthy illustration on what not to do, that is exactly it. Uh, realistically, no, we had a great time, but we had great conversation, right? Uh, we were talking about uh, how it's just hard to love some people. You know, we were talking about our struggles where we know that we're called to love. We know that we're, we're, we're supposed to, that Jesus models it for us. But there are people that are difficult to love. Can we be honest? Anybody struggle with loving some people? If you don't, please talk to me. I want you to pray for me. I want to receive the gift that you have. But the reality of it is, uh, there are people that are very difficult to love. In the midst of this uh, conversation, um, I I think there... um, I think I asked a question to Mark, and uh, I think I phrased it something like this. Uh, can you love people without liking them? <laughs> I don't know. I want you to think about that for just a second. That's a different sermon for a different day. I, I don't think you have to like everybody. <laughs> and I definitely don't think you need to be approving of everybody's decisions or anything like that. Um, but I, I do say this. I, I think there is one type of person that is extremely difficult for me to love. And uh, I don't know if this is something that you guys relate with, but for me, it's the unteachable person. I don't know if you guys have met people like this. Uh, They're they're basically everywhere. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You guys know who I'm talking about. Every family, almost every church, almost every workplace environment, almost every group of friends has somebody like this. It's the know-it-all. It's the person that has already figured everything out. They have all the answers, and there's just there, there's no actual teaching them anything. Does anybody know somebody like that? 
No, everybody's like, yeah, I think he's got the microphone right now. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're saying, you know what, I, I don't know who that would be. I, that might be you, if I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's important to be introspective here, but I, I really want to talk about this thing of being teachable this morning. And for one, it's very hard for me to, to intentionally love and get through some of the nuances of people that are just so above it all. And I think that's probably a struggle for everyone. But in thinking about this and wrestling with this, I, I really came to this uh, conclusion, man, I want to be a teachable person. And I think it's very, uh, very healthy for all of us to have this mentality of being teachable. So why are we talking about this this morning? At the crux of our messaging for this last month, as we've been talking about community, uh, there's been this earnest desire to answer the question of how do we finish well? I, I know that Adam and I and our good friend Daniel, who is a pastor on staff with us, we've, been, we've kind of been asking each other these questions. How do we not wind up like so-and-so? We have so many friends, we, we have ministers, we have friends that we've kind of uh, been in ministry together with, or people that we've admired from afar, or voices that were influential in our life, that just seem to be dropping like flies left and, left and right. They're either abandoning their faith, or they're going off on like cuckoo trails that have nothing to do with Jesus, and it just seems like, man, where, where is the substance? How, why, why are these people not finishing well? You know, I, I have, a, I have a, a kind of a response when people ask me about my favorite authors or my favorite theologians. And can I be honest, most of them are dead. <laughs> and it's, it's not, not for any reason, but they can't let me down, right, if they're already dead. <laughs> I'm not worried about them backsliding <laughs> or coming out with some kind of weird doctrine. I, that, that might be a little morbid, that, whatever. But the reality is, friends, I, I, I want to put safeguards into my life here and now. So you're not, you know, 20 years from now listening to some podcast or watching some documentary about how Open Door Church went crazy, um, <laughs> about how that pastor, that pastor Nate wound up starting a cult or wound up just rejecting Jesus and going off the deep end. Those are things that, those are things that, man, I, I want to be honest, I don't think I, I don't think I'm above those pitfalls. I don't think that I, I'm immune to those things that have brought other men of God that are far superior in whatever. I don't want to say superior, but, you know, this, this mentality that maybe I'm immune to the deception of the enemy. And I think it would be good for each and every one of us to be reflective and ask ourselves the difficult questions of, what safeguards do I have in my life? What, what steps am I actively taking now to make sure I'm not deceived in the future? Because that's the thing about deception, it's deceiving, right? Nobody's just like, oh, I'm going to be deceived, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I think that's the crazy thing. And so when I'm asking these questions, when I'm asking what it looks like to put safeguards in place, the simplest answer that I've kind of come up with when we've just been having these conversations is, uh, and, you know, we've been studying the patterns of these people and these friends that just aren't doing well today. Um, I think I keep coming back to the necessity of biblical community, the local church, the, 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 just the, the intentional fellowship that exists within brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ. And I, I don't think it's just going to church, but a genuine, a genuine, a genuine investment in community. And uh, if there's one thing that I believe that could lead to long-term success, uh, I believe it's having a teachable attitude. And I use the, uh, use the word attitude there very intentionally because uh, having a teachable mindset is important. And I believe this, that attitude will always trump aptitude. And what do I mean by that? I believe that, that your mindset will take you places that your natural talent won't. Because natural talent can only take you so far, but being willing to learn will take you past the place that natural talent stops. I believe that there are people that are naturally gifted in certain areas, but I guarantee you they're only going to get so far on the ladder of success before their natural aptitude runs out. 
and that having a mentality that you're going to continue to learn, that you're going to continue to be teachable will bring you past the place where natural ability stops. Does that make sense? I hope that maybe correlates and connects with you there. But success in life is seldom bit is, oh man, let's uh, rewind that. Success in life is seldom built solely upon one's natural gifting. I wrote this, that teachable people don't have to be the smartest to succeed. They seek to learn and grow in any and every situation. Being teachable is a foundational quality for everyone, workers, students, husbands, wives, and especially here, disciples of Jesus. I believe if you want to be a fruitful disciple of the Lord, you have to foster a teachable spirit. A disciple, uh, even in the, in the definition of what it means to be a disciple, is uh, to be one who is willing to learn. It's someone who is willing to be taught, who is eager to learn. It literally revolves around someone who loves to learn. That's what a disciple was. That's why they called Jesus rabbi and good teacher. They were sitting and they were following a master because they wanted to be taught by him. And if we want to have a healthy kind of picture of discipleship in the church today, it has to be made up of people that recognize we don't have all the answers. And that's why we're here at Jesus's feet, because he does. So it's surprising to me the amount of Christians that pretend to know it all. I don't know. Have you guys encountered this person? The one that just has all the answers all of the time and they're always right and it just feels like you're always wrong? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know that I have. And maybe, maybe I'm projecting a little bit here. Being a younger pastor, you know, I, it's common for me to have uh, typically older guys that will come to me and bring a lot of correction. I'm using like the, the air quotes here and tell me exactly what I'm doing wrong and exactly how I should be doing it better. And friends, I'm all about wanting to be better. I'm all about wanting to submit myself to healthy criticism and critique and, and taking sound advice. But the reality of it is, if you're constantly at the giving end of correction, but you're not receiving correction, well, something is wrong. And, uh, I have, a, I have a son. His name's Phineas. I have two sons, uh, but I'm, I'm, telling a son, I'm telling a story about my son Phineas, who's in kindergarten right now. And he's recently entered this phase of life where uh, we'll ask him to do something, and he responds with, I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll tell him how to do something, and he'll say, I know. I know how. And we'll be trying to explain in detail. And it's just, he, he all of a sudden knows how to do everything and does not want us to explain it anymore. Uh, has anybody encountered that phase of life with your kids yet? It's, it's kind of cute, but equally frustrating. <laughs> and so it's always, this, it's always this kind of response of, I know, Mom. I know, Dad. We'll tell him to do something. Hey, we need to, you need to pick up your room. He's like, I know. And the, the kind of inevitable response is always, if you know, why aren't you doing it? <laughs> right? <laughs> Mere knowledge does not translate to wisdom until it is put into action. Knowing something and doing something are two entirely different things, are they not? And so you can know something up here all you want, but wisdom is demonstrated in the life that you live. I want to read to you James 3.13. And I'm reading out of the WNT translation. It's a translation from 1905. So if you're not familiar with it, uh, that might be why, but I really love the way that this was phrased. James 3.13 says, Which of you is a wise and well-instructed man? Let him prove it by a right life with conduct guided by a wisely teachable spirit. Understand this, friends. I, I want to be clear here. That both the wise and foolish people make mistakes. You guys understand that. I don't, I don't care what, you, what, what kind of realm of reality that you want to live in. Wise people still screw it up sometimes. <laughs> the difference between the wise and the foolish man is the wise man will learn from his mistakes while the foolish person will continue to repeat the same patterns again and again and again and again. 
And so when I'm talking about wisdom this morning, when I'm talking about being teachable, it's not like somehow you're less than if you're consistent, if you're making mistakes, if you're falling short, if you're struggling, if things are not going right, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're stupid. That doesn't mean that you're foolish, but it does serve as an opportunity to use those things, to use those mistakes, to use those rough patches to learn. And that's what I'm talking about here, having a teachable spirit, how to foster a teachable spirit. And so if I were going to give a point, uh, I think I have three. I don't know if I actually numbered them. Uh-oh. Oh, no. I had points. Pages quit unexpectedly. <laughs> Problem, report for pages. We'll reopen that. We'll see how this goes. Uh, <laughs> The first thing that I would really want to highlight about fostering a teachable spirit is this, is that uh, I believe it begins with humility. I think we have to grow in humility, and I think that's something that can actually be done. I, I would like to, th and I think it's something that isn't done well, especially in kind of modern evangelicalism, because oftentimes the people have been serving Jesus the longest. <laughs> Those that always have something to say uh, tend to be the most proud and arrogant. And I, I'm saying this as a, as a really gross generalization. I recognize this isn't true of everyone. But I think it's something for us to be observant of, to be on guard against. Just because you've been serving Jesus for a long time just doesn't automatically give you the stamp of spiritual maturity. I think there has to be, I, I believe it has to be, um, accompanied by humility. I wrote this, that a genuine mark of spiritual maturity is humility. And too often I see it the other way around. Many of those who have heralded, uh, who have been heralded as the most spiritual are often the most arrogant, the most prideful, having an I arrived mentality. And I believe a genuine mark of spiritual maturity is understanding that you will never arrive. If you ever stop learning, if you ever stop growing, that's a scary place to be because you said, you know what? I've matured enough. I've arrived enough. I've done enough. I'm content here. And it's in that place where we begin to backslide. I've always shared this example since I was a youth pastor, but it's like running backwards up an escalator. How many of you guys have done that? At least five people in here have done that. There are people back here. Nobody raised their hands except for one guy in the back who happens to be 13, and so at least he's honest. <laughs> but all of you guys that are like adults and very stoic and like, I would never do such a thing, that have tried to go backwards up an escalator, I, I realize they don't have escalators in Pagosa, but most of you have traveled away from here. I'm thinking <laughs> half of you are probably from Texas. Do they have escalators in Texas? Nobody's going to answer my question. They're like, stop talking about this, Nate. Uh, but, right, if, you go, if you're, you're walking backwards up an escalator, if you stop halfway, what's going to happen? You're going to wind up back where you began. And that's the same thing with our walk with the Lord. That's the same way with our spiritual progression in maturity. The moment that we stop advancing towards Jesus, the current of this culture will bring us back to where we were, if not worse. Does that make sense? Um, and so with that in mind, I believe that humility is the starting point for teachability because teachable souls recognize their need for learning. I want to read to you Proverbs 3, 7, and 8. It says this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. There's, there's a promise of physical health here to not be wise in your own eyes, to not be arrogant, to not to be proudful, to practice humility. Proverbs 26, 12 says this, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than them. I think we have to take to heart the instruction of Paul in Philippians chapter two, modeling Christ in the way that we interact with one another. Because I, I think a lot of times we, we feel like maybe we're better than other people, even if we don't want to. I like to think, I like to think of myself uh, higher than I ought to. 
<laughs> and I like to have these interactions with people, and immediately I file it away. It's like, there's nothing I'm going to learn from this. There's nothing that this person could possibly offer me, and I try to like immediately sever and cut them off, which is a terrible way of thinking and counter to the gospel. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If we're going to foster a teachable spirit, if we're going to have a teachable mentality, it's got to begin with humility. And I believe we grow in humility as we grow in the Holy Spirit. Wow. They are, uh, they are learning about the, the fall of Jericho downstairs this morning. But I'm a little concerned because I, I don't know how structurally sound this building is. <laughs> if they shout loud enough, the whole, the whole thing might come crumbling down. I'm just kidding. Humility is integral if we're going to be teachable. The second thing that I would caution us to do if we're going to foster a teachable spirit is to surround ourselves with wise people. Surround yourself with people that are also willing to learn. Surround yourself with people that are striving to be teachable as well. Because if you're in a group where you feel like you know it all, and you're, you're running around with arrogant people, you're going to breed that same kind of spirit. Proverbs 13.20 says this, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. It's like that popular saying that was really kind of like the, the catchy one-liner when I was in youth ministry, that if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Friends, uh, if I'm honest, I, I believe that this is so integral to have people that you actually spend time with, that you would consider your friends that are going to provoke you to wisdom, that are going to encourage you to learn, that are going to push you to be better. Be careful of who is actively influencing your life, right? We don't take, there's a reason why uh, we don't take financial advice from broke people, right? You don't see the guy with like 67 cents in his bank account on TikTok giving you all the investment strategies that you need to do. I made this mistake one time. My good friend, Cody Matson, he was an intern, a youth student before that. And I knew better. I knew better. This guy has had his ups and downs. But man, I, he, he told me that I needed to invest in some cryptocurrency. And I was like, what do I got to lose? yeah, we can spare $100 and invest in cryptocurrency. And he's like, you got to do it. You got to do it. Man, I did it. And all of a sudden, man, I was looking pretty good. It was on a good trajectory. And I was like, man, I should probably sell this Shibu Inu coin. It's like some kind of joke meme currency. And he's like, no, man, you don't want to do that. Trust me on this one. And at one point in time, I was up like pretty good in the stock market, which I don't understand. So please don't take this as me advocating or endorsing any kind of uh, public trading or anything like that because it is well beyond my realm of understanding. And I was like, man, I think this would probably be a good time to just sell this and say, hey, yeah, we did the thing. We, 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 we figured it out. We made a little bit of money and we could go like buy somebody dinner or something. He's like, no, you need to hold. It's going to go to the moon is what he kept saying. And uh, inevitably, uh, I started with like $30 and now I have like 2.3 cents or something. It's, it's sad when, you know, they measure it by the percentage of a cent, right? <laughs> All that to say, that was a, a horribly long anecdotal story to don't take uh, financial advice from broke people, <laughs> right? There's a reason why we don't do that. It's the same way we don't take marriage advice or relationship advice from the guy that hasn't been able to stay in a steady relationship longer than a week, right? There's a, there's a reason why we don't go to these people for advice. I had one, right when I got married, guys, I had a guy that came up to me it was like a week after our honeymoon. I'm in City Market, and this particular guy like pulled me aside and said, hey, man, can I give you some marriage advice? <laughs> and I told him no, 
Because I knew exactly if what the advice he was going to give wasn't either was going to be terrible advice or it wasn't good enough advice for him to follow. And it was very much like, you know what? I, I don't think so. And uh, I want to I encourage you guys, it's okay to not take all the advice that is out there. It's important to be discerning, okay? Be, be, be intentional about the voices that you listen to. Does that make sense? Make sure that the voices that you're listening to are aligning with Scripture. Because there are plenty of smooth-talking fools that exist out there that sound really good. They might even sound really spiritual. And this is where it, comes, uh, it becomes all the more important that we know the Scripture, right? We know what God has already said so we can discern whether or not advice that is being given lines up with what God has already said. Does that make sense? 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that the language there for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training, those are four words that all essentially are saying the same thing, are they not? To be taught, to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be trained. Those, uh, if somebody wants to break down the difference for all those and explain them to me, I will gladly listen. But as I'm reading this, this is a lot of language to essentially say the same thing. Which will bring me to my third point, that we need to learn how to receive. We need to learn to receive correction well. I think this is, uh, this is the one that probably hits closest to home for most of us. And it's directly related to this previous point of making sure that we're surrounding ourselves with people and voices we can trust. Because if we're surrounding ourselves with wise people, uh, we'll have people in our life that will hopefully respond to their correction. I'm grateful to have the friends that I do. I have many of you guys here in this room that have been willing to tell me when I've been doing something stupid, (laughs) when I've been doing something wrong. And friends, I, I can't think of anything that I'm more grateful for than somebody that I trust, that I know has my best interest at heart when they come alongside me and say, you know what, I see this in your life. I see something going south here. I think this might need to change. And I understand that it's not coming from a place of they just think they're better than me or they just want me to, or, or they see something wrong and they're trying to belittle me. Man, if Adam comes to me and says, you know what, Pastor Nate, I really... I really don't think you should be doing this. You should probably stop going to the casino. You know, I'm using this as an example. If he came to me with that, I'd be like, man, you're right. I do want to be honoring God with everything. I, you haven't had to tell me that, have you? Not yet. Uh, <laughs> but the, re- the reality is, I do not go to the casino. I, I mean, we have the casino with the bowling alley. I went to the bowling alley like six years ago. I don't know. Uh Uh-oh. What am I getting at with all this? Uh, (laughs) We need to learn to receive correction well. And I believe everyone needs trusted friends that will tell it to them straight. I think there's nothing more valuable than having someone that's willing to tell you the harsh truth. Because sometimes we need it. (laughs) The last thing the majority of us needs is somebody that's just going to tell us that everything's okay and everything's fine just the way it is. Uh, I was doing this, uh, this bike training exercise for a little bit and there was like these cycling classes. And when I first got on the bike, I almost got off of it because the first instructor that does like the introductory thing was all about like, this is your safe space and you just do what's good for you. And this is a positive, you know, just, th- you, you just do you. You ride at a speed that you feel is comfortable, and it's like a cycling class. I'm like, I cannot do this. I need the person that's going to like belittle me and tell me I'm just worthless, pathetic, like get off your butt and move. 
Like, I got the, like, I need the drill sergeant that's just telling me, like, I'm worthless if I'm going to actually get a workout in. I don't know if anybody else is like that. Maybe not everybody responds the same way. But the reality is, sometimes we need somebody that's going to be firm with us if we actually want to cultivate the response that's needed. Does that make sense? Coddling does nobody any good. And I think the same is true with our friends. Now, now we can share the truth in love, but it doesn't mean, you know, we don't just have to be jerks about it, like call them a dirt bag or, or something like that. <laughs> but the reality is uh, we need to learn to receive correction well. This is what Proverbs would say about it. Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. If you hate correction, the Bible says you're stupid. <laughs> I know that's like a word that we're not allowed to, like our kids aren't allowed to use that word. Um, but God uses it here. And so I think it's okay. If uh, you hate correction, you're stupid. That's what, that's what scripture tells us. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32 says, Whoever heeds life-giving correction, notice that, I love that, life-giving correction, will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves. It doesn't even say that they despise, well, they don't despise the one that's giving the correction. It, it actually says that they despise themselves. But the one who heeds correction gains understanding. I think people are just too comfortable being wrong. You know? <laughs> right? We're living in a culture where we're not allowed to tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong, right? <laughs> If we observe something from scripture and we, we try to tell somebody, they're like, don't tell me how to live my life. Well, if there is a wrong way to live, wouldn't you want to know? I, I know for me, if I'm doing something wrong and somebody that knows how to do it right, knows how to do it right, comes alongside me, I, I want to know how to do it right. When I first started snowboarding, I had no idea what I was doing. I literally got up on the mountain. All my friends had already left and uh, I sat down uh, and I got off, not at the bunny hill, it was at Monarch. I accidentally went all the way to the top of the hill and I sat down and I had no idea what I was doing. And I looked at a skier that was next to me because he's the only guy up there. I was like, what do I do? He's like, uh, just strap in and point it straight and go down the hill. <laughs> so that's what I did. He yelled at me as I'm going down, try not to fall. I didn't fall, but I didn't stop and I wasn't slowing down. And the only way that I stopped was I hit my friend and I sliced his hand open with a snowboard. It was great. We're still good friends. Uh, he doesn't snowboard anymore. But I remember moving to Pagosa and really having no idea of what I was doing. And Ben Loper was a worship pastor here who happened to be a snowboard instructor up on the mountain. And he finally took me up one day and he was like, I don't know how you're doing it. You're doing everything wrong, but you're still kind of doing it. But let me show you the right way to do it, basically. And then I met Elliot, and Elliot was like, this is what you should be doing. Uh, he's a, if you guys don't know this about Elliot, Elliot is the best teacher that I have ever encountered in anything. He is the most patient human being <laughs> that is just consistent. Like, man, I want you to teach my kids how to drive because I just know that you're gonna do a great job. <laughs> But for me, you know, a lot of progress came in something as simple as snowboarding that I was doing wrong because somebody that knew how to do it right came alongside me and showed me. Now, I could have been like, Elliot, you don't know what you're talking about. This is working for me. I'm just going to keep doing this. But I would still be stuck in a tree well. <laughs> I'd still be stuck there. But I'm thankful for people that can come alongside and bring correction. But too many people are comfortable with just doing the thing wrong, Right? Over and over and over again because we would rather continue to be wrong than be corrected. And that is rooted in pride. And my natural reaction to correction is often to get defensive. I don't know about you guys, but my immediate reaction when somebody's like, hey, you're doing this wrong is my, my defenses go up and I'm like, wait, no, this was the reason why. And I always have to be on the defense and kind of like self-preservation because I want to be right but my natural reaction isn't the correct one. I believe we need to welcome correction, to seek to grow from it. And now I, I get it, because sometimes correction comes and it's genuine. 
Like it's like an Elliot that wants to teach you how to snowboard a little better or something like that. And then there's the unwarranted like critique that comes sometimes. You know, I had a guy come up to me after church a couple weeks ago after I made the explicit comment, don't be that guy that just sees everything that's wrong and comes to me with like a list of 23 things that I misspoke or something like that. And this guy literally says, I don't want to be that guy, but you did this wrong. <laughs> and I, I, I'm saying this, uh, this doesn't sound like humility or anything like that, but I, I honestly think that, you know, I was right and he was wrong. Um, but with that being said, even if, even if he was 98% off base, but it was rooted in like 2% of the truth, I want to have the mentality that I can take that 2%, that, that, that small sliver of what he might be getting at, take it to the Lord in repentance to make sure that I'm continually growing. I don't want to be above rebuke. Even if it's unwarranted, even if it doesn't really make sense, I still want to have the tendency in myself that I can be better from anything. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not very good at this, so hear me out, guys. This is something the Lord is teaching me, but that's something that I strive for. It makes me think of, of David and Nathan. If you guys remember this story, uh, David is the king, and uh, he winds up uh, doing some pretty horrible things there, right? In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 and 12, uh, he sleeps with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, I mean, there's an argument that's made that he, he probably raped her. It wasn't like she could really consensually say no to the king. Take that for what you will. Has, his, has one of his good friends killed, murdered on the battlefield, right, to cover up his mistake. <laughs> and Bathsheba gets pregnant. And it's a, it's a period of time before uh, Nathan, the prophet, confronts him. We see it in the next chapter, but we know the baby's already been born, so... It's a, it's a segment of time there, you know, like, what, nine months at least. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, you know what? Uh, he tells this allegorical story about a lamb and whatnot, but uh, David is, like, righteously, like, infuriated. And uh, the response is that, you are that man, David. And uh, long story short, he gets called out for his sin. The prophet here is willing to speak up to the king, the king that can have his head at any moment, right? <laughs> but he fears God enough to call David out. And I probably believe that he loved David enough to call him out on his sin. And what we have from that is this beautiful response, this beautiful, uh, this beautiful act of repentance. It's recorded in Psalm 51 that I would encourage you guys maybe to, to look at the story maybe a little bit more in depth. But if we're ever hopeful to see that kind of Davidic response to sin and correction, <laughs> uh, that genuine repentance that we see in Psalm 51, we have to learn how to respond to correction well. And uh, I believe the way that we do that is we surround ourselves with people like Nathan. We make sure that people have access to our life that are willing to tell us when we're wrong. <laughs> that they can come before us and uh, hopefully not expect uh, retaliation, um, but that we can respond rightfully. And I love this, that the king himself, David, wasn't beyond reproof. He wasn't beyond rebuke here. You know, the, the highest guy in all the land. I just think there's a, there's a high viewpoint there of responding to correction well. That's something that I want to strive for. When I was um, this, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago now, I had the privilege of spending some time with who I would consider a spiritual father. He was the man that led me to Jesus. Uh, he used to be the youth pastor here at this church, uh, decades ago. I didn't know that before I moved to Pagosa, but uh, he wound up leading me to the Lord in Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, we got together this uh, a couple weeks ago and we spent some time up at Red Mountain, up at Darwin and Lisa's. And uh, I recounted a story that he didn't even remember, but uh, I had been particularly dumb 
uh, during a course of events, and it wasn't like sinful or anything. I was just a punk teenager that made some bad, poor decisions that cost him a lot of money. <laughs> and remember just having a punk attitude about the whole thing. And uh, I look back, I was 16 years old, and I remember receiving a phone call from my youth pastor at the time where he essentially laid into me. Uh, I mean, he yelled at me. He raised his voice. He told me I was being a punk. He told me I was being stupid and that I needed to get my head on straight. And, and it was like a 45-minute conversation. I remember just listening. And you might say, well, I don't know if that was the best way to go about it. I am so thankful that there was a man of God with guts enough to call me out for my stupidity. Because I, and I mean that. I desperately needed that as a young man that didn't have a father, that didn't have a family. He was willing to call me out when I was being stupid, and I knew he genuinely cared about me. And what I, I say this, not out of a place of pride, but I honestly believe I am where I am today based upon how I responded to that conversation. I, I, and this isn't like, oh, Pastor Nate, he's so awesome. He responds to correction so well. I don't. But in this situation, there was grace from the Lord where I responded to what he had to say. And I honestly believe I'm in ministry today. I believe I'm still following Jesus today because I responded to correction well. And I, I look back as a, at that as a, a pivotal moment in my life, a pivotal moment in my uh, walk with the Lord because I remember there are so many friends that I have that we shared the exact same experiences with. We sat in the exact same teachings, the exact same Bible classes. I mean, we, we had the same ministry opportunities. We were in the same room where we saw a little girl healed and see for the first time. You know, uh, seeing these things that, uh, having these shared experiences that are not following Jesus anymore. And I think about that. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far down that road. I just believe responding to correction well is a key thing if we're going to foster a teachable spirit. I believe correction is a sign of love. And if we're going to receive correction, well, we need to understand that. You know, our culture's definition of love is to let people do whatever they feel like, is it not? Right? That's what love is love. That's kind of the mantra. And we're not supposed to tell people how to live. And that's the, that's the big thing that gets on there. And that's filtered into the church where I'm sorry to break it to you, but the Bible gives very clear instruction on how we ought to live. And if you don't want to be told how to live, I don't think following Jesus is probably uh, going to give you that comfort. I know for a fact it won't because uh, he does have some pretty clear instructions, but can I tell you it's good? <laughs> Guys, imagine if I just let my kids do whatever they wanted. Imagine if I just let my kids do whatever they felt like, right? I love my kids. There's no question about that. But you know what? They really like to play in the parking lot. And they would really like to play down in the street down here. I, I guarantee you, if I said that they could go play in the street, they probably would run and throw a ball in the street and just go chasing after it. But I, as a good father, I don't let them play in the road, right? Can I get a gold star for that? Something like that. Like, I don't let them run across the highway. We're not playing no real-life frogger or anything like that. But the, but the reality of it is, is that a good father will love and discipline and set boundaries for his kids, right? We see this in the scriptures. We see this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, uh, 4 through 11 says this, If you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you do not experience discipline like everyone else, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Furthermore, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not much more submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. 
No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. Now, I I realize, friends, this is talking about the discipline of the Lord, but I've often known the rebuke of the Lord to come through men and women of God who have a voice of influence in my life. And uh, I don't know if that made sense. Uh, Adam gave me like this confused look. (laughs) Uh, The rebuke of the Lord has often come through people that I trust, where I've had somebody that uh, has taught me the scriptures or someone that I have close relationship with. Uh, I've experienced correction uh, coming through those people that I trust. And when we're talking about one another, we're talking about living and thriving in community, I don't want us to be afraid of the exhortation. I don't want us to be afraid of uh, you know, bringing correction to one another. This isn't like just like go free for all and point out everything that's wrong with everybody else. But I do believe that we need to be teachable people. And I want us to have a teachable attitude when we come together as the people of God because there are things that I can learn from you. And there are things that you can hopefully learn from me. And at the end of the day, I want to be wise. I want to be pleasing to the Lord. And I think that it's so imperative that if we're going to be good disciples of Jesus, that we have a teachable spirit. Does that make sense? At the end of the day, it's something that the Holy Spirit has to initiate and accomplish. You know, we understand that it is the Holy Spirit that is given as a gift that will guide us and lead us into all truth, right? And um, I just want to make sure that I'm always, always teachable. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.